This is episode 151 with the founder and editor of Race Results Weekly and a pro road race and sports media consultant, a man who knows pro running inside and out, Mr. David Monty. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Fitzgerald, and I want to thank you for being here today. If you're listening, that means you love the sport of running and want to improve. That is our goal for this podcast, to give you the ideas, the tools, and the resources to take your running to the next level. If you're new to the podcast, what I do here is bring you the leaders in the fitness industry to help you reach more of your big running goals. From elite runners, sports psychologists, strength experts, running coaches, best-selling authors, and physical therapists who can help make our running dreams become a reality. Because I believe that knowledge is a competitive advantage. The more you understand the sport, the better decisions you'll make about your training. Don't miss our other 150 episodes. That number blows me away. We also have a video channel on YouTube or our home base, strengthrunning.com. I'd also like to thank Elemental Labs for helping me make this episode possible. You might have noticed that I've been publishing even more episodes of the podcast over the last four months or so. That's partly because you asked for more, but also because our sponsors make it possible for me to do so. So a big thanks to Elemental Labs. They make sodium-heavy electrolyte drinks for hard-charging athletes. And I've got to tell you, I was drinking the raspberry salt flavor for a while, but the citrus is hands down my favorite. You can check it out at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. Elemental Labs doesn't use anything artificial, and anybody who runs a lot knows that sodium, as well as the other electrolytes that they include, like magnesium and potassium, are essential to our performance and how we feel throughout the day. Those low-sodium symptoms that you might have, those can be headaches, low energy, muscle cramps, and even insomnia. We want to avoid that. Go to drinklmnt.com to see all that they have to offer. All right, our guest today has been involved in the running industry for more than 25 years. He's the founder, editor, and publisher of Race Results Weekly, which is a subscription service for the world's running results that's delivered every week. David also used to recruit elite athletes to race at New York Roadrunners events and worked as a sports media consultant. Through his work, he has a fascinating perspective on the sport. He's attended and watched in person some of the most electrifying races the world has ever seen. And we talk about the races that still stick in his mind after all these years. David's consistent exposure to the highest levels of the sport give him a certain wisdom about where running has been, where it is now, and where it's going in the future. So we'll talk about what's changed most in the running industry, what will likely stay the same, and what we might look forward to in the coming decades. This is a unique episode with a very unique guest. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mr. David Monty. David, thanks so much for being here. Hi. Uh, David, you have a very cool job. Can you describe what it is that you do for the running community for us? Well, at the moment, my only uh, job is that I am the editor and publisher of Race Results Weekly. That is a results and news service that follows in, some might say, excruciating detail, 
uh, middle and long distance running uh, globally. We produce a results consolidation uh, almost every Monday, 50 Mondays a year uh, by 10 o'clock that tells you what went on all around the world in distance running, uh, marathons, road races, uh, track events, uh, mountain running, trail running, anything from 800 meters uh, to the ultra marathon. And during the week in between those issues, we produce original news stories uh, for the benefit of our direct subscribers who receive uh, race results weekly by email but also for uh, running websites who use our material the same way that newspapers use the Associated Press. We're like a little wire service for them. So you might see our stuff on Runner's World or Let's Run or Flow Track, um, Runner Space, or Marathon Guide, any of those sites uh, pick up our, our material. Now, I've also, uh, with the material that I gathered over the years, I spent uh, almost two decades working as an events consultant, uh, primarily for New York Roadrunners. I'm sure you're familiar with them. They're the organizer of the New York City Marathon and 50 other running races. And I would recruit the professional athletes that would run uh, in their events and give them advice uh, on uh, pro athletes. And I also work as a pro athletes consultant for NBC Sports at the Olympic Games, and I've uh, covered or worked on five games uh, for them. No, six games. Tokyo would have been the seventh, and hopefully it still will, uh, where I sit down uh, with the producers and with the announcers and try to help them uh, tell stories about what we're about to see on the field of play. Wow. What is it that you don't do? (laughs) This is so cool. Um, And it sounds like, you know, you're covering running from all around the world. And I'm just wondering about the nuts and bolts of a kind of a wire service like this. How do you actually go about compiling all of this information on a weekly basis? Because it seems like, you know, right now, of course, notwithstanding, but, you know, in normal times, there would be hundreds of races all around the world in a given week. Uh, how do you understand where those races are being held and who's running them and, and all of the information that comes out of them? All right, so don't laugh, but at the beginning, when Race Results Weekly, RW was founded in 1994, it was a fax service, so there was no email, and people had really no way of getting information about what was going on in small sports. Let's say that you were a swimming fan or a cycling fan or a running fan. That wasn't going to be in your local newspaper. So when, you know, famous races, uh, races that would be famous for you or for me, like the Falmouth Road Race would go on, it would take weeks to find out what happened. So there was some guy in Colorado that used to have a paper newsletter that went out uh, every couple of weeks. It was called Running Stats. And he would, you know, get results on the telephone from people and type them up into this format and print them and go to the printer and they put them in an envelope and send them to people. It was pretty clunky. And RW was unique that you signed up for it as a fax service. And I had a computer fax program. And in this little corner of my bedroom uh, in Manhattan, I had my laptop and I had this fax program and I would call people and beg people for results and, you know, type things up into a small format and out they would go. And, you know, maybe we did three, four events a week 
frankly, I didn't know that much about running. I was just a recreational runner uh, who was just getting interested in the sport. But as time went on and the internet progressed, uh, we were able to migrate everything to email. Uh, we do have a website, but it's not uh, doesn't have any content. It's just a place that we promote our our service. And over a very long period of time, and I mean decades, I was able to pull together a global calendar of running events, track meets, indoor track, high school meets, college meets, road races, marathons, all over the world, and develop contacts at those events. And of course, now with the web, we have web links, and there are all these, God, hundreds, if not more, uh, results services around the world. So all of this is distilled down into this one giant calendar that every week tells me what events we're going to be looking for uh, results from. And in a slow week, it's 20 to 30. And in a busy week, like Thanksgiving weekend, for instance, it's probably over over 80. And I usually have somebody help me. I've had assistant editors over the years. Uh, and I have a fellow now works with me from Spain who helps me pull it all together. And we're pretty hard on ourselves. Uh, Monday at 10 o'clock, that's when RW goes out, uh, come hell or high water. And whether I'm on the road or at home or wherever I am, uh, it gets done. And we've produced, I think, 1,200 issues uh, so far. And I don't think I've missed a Monday. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, this is like a behind the scenes look at, you know, how we learn about running events around the world over the last couple of decades. And I remember when I was a kid, I was getting involved in cross country and indoor track, outdoor track as a uh, high schooler. And I remember opening up the Boston Sunday Globe because I grew up outside of Boston. And I would be looking at, you know, in this tiny little section of the sports section, there would be some local road race results. And I just would love seeing, okay, wh where was this race? Who ran it? Any names that I might have recognized? But for me, that was the only thing at the time where I could actually look outside of my own little local bubble and see what was going on in the broader running world. And even then, it was really only the, the greater Boston area. Now, as you guys have kind of evolved over the years, have you started adding different types of races to your service? I mean, uh, do you include you know, 100 mile ultra marathon trail races? Do you include obstacle course races? Where do you draw the line at, you know, a, a running event and a, a, an event that includes running, but maybe won't make the cut? That's a very good question, uh, Jason, uh, because we are pretty loose. Uh, for instance, we always include uh, the Ironman World Championships uh, in our service. Uh, we have a pretty robust coverage of mountain running and, and trail running, although I, I would say that we don't pick up everything. We generally don't cover obstacle racing, but we usually try to pull in the results from the big championships uh, because sometimes there's uh, crossover athletes, as I call them, you know, who, who would uh, be recognized by our readers uh, who might be participating there. Uh, and, you know, I always think about it from the reader's standpoint. What would somebody find interesting? Uh, and we try to get it in there. And you're usually just up against this huge uh, uh, time issue of trying to get it done 
in time. So as I always joke with my wife, you know, I've given up uh, hundreds and hundreds of weekends <laughs> over the years, you know, uh, parties, birthdays, uh, you know, funerals, everything, stuff that I never got to because I was working on Sunday. So I'm still in that mode now, but, you know, my readers are very important to me and I really want them to get everything that they can each week. And what's really valuable about our service is that it's timely. You know, it's not, you don't wait. It happens right away. Um, so, you know, we're right on top of it. If something happened on Saturday night, you've got it right there on Monday with all the ramifications. And we annotate. I think I sent you this week's issue. Uh, we try to annotate everything, too. You know, who's got personal best? What are the records? Is it a meat record? Is it a national record? This weekend, there was these wonderful mile races in Marion, Indiana, where Corey McGee ran a state record. So I had to look all that up. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the most fascinating aspect of what you do is really allow uh, people who are commenting about the sport, talking about the sport, to understand what's going on in the sport and really have more of a narrative, a story to tell about all the numbers. Because, you know, that essentially what you're doing is you're putting together uh, a database of performances, who ran what, when they ran it, where they ran it. And that's the context that you're helping these announcers and other uh, folks who are telling these stories uh, understand so that they can, you know, tell fans of the sport a little bit more of a story around these performances. And and I think, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, running more broadly maybe lacks a little bit is that these, you know, these stories in the sport, you know, even me, you know, I'm not a, a big baseball fan, but I know that there's a Red Sox Yankees rivalry. It goes back a long time. And, you know, there's, there isn't that same kind of lore in the sport of running. And, and I think the stories that you're able to uh, tell using these numbers just makes it uh, uh, a better uh, sport for us to follow as fans. Yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, we're all about storytelling and we're also all about data. So we're, we're doing both of those things uh, at the same time uh, whenever possible. But use the word context. And I thought that was really good because explaining to people what performances mean is super important, especially as we lead up to big championships like the Olympic Games. And the qualifying algorithm can be very complicated. And, you know, explaining to people why, you know, this marathon performance by this person counted toward getting them to the next Olympics while this one didn't. Uh, people just don't understand the rules are so technical. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, looking back over all the work that you've done over the last, I see it's about 26 years or so, you know, you have really not only seen, but also just compiled all the data for so many big meets, big races, really world-changing performances. When you think back over the last quarter century or so, what was the most exciting moment in the sport of running for you? I mean, wh what do you think about constantly and what do you think that you'll continue to think about in the years ahead? You know, that is really hard to answer because there are so many great things uh, that I was very, very, very lucky uh, to see in person. Uh, but the one race, if I had to pick one that I saw live, not on a monitor, that I was, you know, in the stadium right there to see, that will always stay with me uh, for its impact 
uh, without question, was the men's 800-meter final from the London 2012 Olympics. Uh, the race for the ages where David Rudisha, in an Olympic final, ran a world record in the 800 that is yet to be broken. And every man behind him ran a spectacular time, including uh, Americans like uh, Nick Simmons. Uh, and the entire stadium was just shaking uh, because it was so incredible. Like nobody breaks a world record in a middle distance final in the Olympics. Those races are tactical, right? You know, what did Matthew Centuritz uh, run to win the uh, 1500 in Rio? He I don't remember, but it was slow. It was slow, right? He ran like a 350. <laughs> but it was super exciting, right? Because it was all about the last lap. Rudisha did just the opposite. The gun went off and he just hit it. And his foot got stepped on during the race and his shoe was not fully on the whole way for these two laps. I did yeah. not know that. He still ran 140. And we've never seen anybody else do that since then. Uh, and I, I don't know uh, what it's going to take uh, to break that record or who's going to do it or when that's going to happen. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but that's the one that will really stay with me from inside the stadium. And from a road race, it's kind of a tough call uh, between – the Beijing Olympic Marathon uh, in 2008, where Sammy Wanjiru, uh, the late Sammy Wanjiru, who, who very sadly died, uh, you know, manhandled this race uh, alone, uh, taking the pace at the front in the blazing hot sun in Beijing and just scorched the field. Um, I forget if he ran 205 or 206, uh, but to win, but it was it's one of the great marathon performances of all time. Uh, and then the 2002 uh, London Marathon, uh, which is when Kali Kanuchi, Paul Turgot, and Haile Gebre Selassie all faced each other in the same race. And Kanuchi won in a world record, beating these two other giants of the sport. Uh, and I was in the press room and, you know, got to see it up close. Um, I would have given anything to have been on a lead vehicle <laughs> to watch that. But those are the ones that really stick with me. Oh, yeah. I mean, those are great performances to remember. And and I even remember all of them. Of course, I wasn't there. But, you know, the the 800 meter final uh, uh, with David Radisha, didn't he take the lead from almost the very beginning and just the whole field was just desperately trying to catch him, at least for the final three, 400 meters, if my memory serves me right. But, you know, that is that is a race that I have watched on YouTube several times since it happened, because it's one of those, you know, two minutes of footage that just gets you so excited for a workout, a long run, whatever kind of run you're getting ready for. If you need to get amped up, watch David Rudisha run the world record in the 800. It's just electrifying. I couldn't agree more. That's the perfect use of two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, now I'd love to talk a little bit more about, um, you know, the, the, the future you just have had such a consistent long-term view of the state of running, not just in the United States, but really around the world. Um, and, and I'm curious, what are some of the biggest changes that have happened in the sport since you started, uh, back in the mid nineties? Without question, uh, the biggest thing is the professionalization of the sport at all levels. 
So, you know, organizing, you know, road races was completely like a seat of the pants thing in the 1970s. You know, people were just making it up as they went along. You know, there was no money. There were no professional race directors. The athletes were basically amateurs and they were, you know, trying to make a little cash that might have been under the table and all that. You know, fast forward, you know, to where we are today. And and I do mean, you know, prior to the pandemic uh, where, you know, everything's professionalized. All the people that work at the shoe companies, uh, the race organizers, the athletes, the agents, the people that coach them, um, you know, is at a much higher level. And there's just so much more money, you know, investment going in. What made what makes all this possible is not the athletes who are at the top of the food chain. It's all of the regular runners. It's all the people that run for themselves. Uh, they form this huge base. And as long as those folks are out there and they're running a lot and they're buying shoes and they're buying race entries, uh, the top of the sport stays healthy. Uh, and as we're learning now in the pandemic, uh, as people are able to run as a, you know, on their own, but they can't participate in races. And what happens to the races, uh, with the people at the top? They're canceling because they can't really be held without the participation of the thousands, you know, that are running behind them. And I always loved the big tent aspect of the sport. The fact that a great race encompasses runners of all abilities and welcomes runners of all abilities. And, you know, the Super Bowl is an amazing sporting event, but you can't be on the field of play for the Super Bowl. But you could be on the field of play for the Boston Marathon and not be a professional athlete at the front. And you're not going to win the race, but you can experience it. You can experience the fans. You can get the energy from that uh, in the same way that the people at the front do. And I think that that aspect of running, and particularly road running, uh, is so cool. And I, you, you have to understand the sport is still developing in other parts of the world. It's very well advanced in Europe and the United States, but in South America and in Asia, it's still pretty new. Uh, and there's people just learning how to run and getting involved. So when the pandemic finally is over, I do think that we'll go back to racing as we did before. I do think the events will come back. Most of them will, uh, but it's going to take a little while. You know, you've mentioned one of the coolest aspects of the sport of running, and that is the fact that what an elite experiences is is almost the same as what an amateur experiences on race day. Um, you know, you mentioned the Super Bowl, and I'm pretty sure I've used this analogy on the podcast earlier, um, you know, in another episode. But I remember talking about the fact that, you know, if you're a basketball fan, you like watching LeBron James play, you will never be able to get on the same court that LeBron James plays on. You'll never be able to shoot the same basketball on the same net and just get a feel for what that is like. You can't look up in the stands, but you can run up Heartbreak Hill after Des Linden does and feel exactly what that is like. And that is an aspect of the sport of running that I think makes it so approachable and also just gives you this window into the experiences of elite runners that very few other professional sports really uh, can, can lay claim to. And, and that's one of the reasons why I love the sport of running so much. 
Are you familiar with an athlete named John Ranieri? I can't say that I am. So John Ranieri is uh, an elite uh, runner, but uh, and he lives in Flagstaff. He recently set a world record for the half marathon on a treadmill that he ran 103 low at high altitude at 7,000 feet. Don't ask me how he did that. But he's also a coach. And he works with this group called McCurdy Trained, which helps train runners of all levels. And if you talk to him, he is just as excited about the, you know, the lawyer, the stockbroker, you know, the nurse uh, that he coaches and gets amped up for all of their goals just in the same way as he does for his own. Because that experience, just like you said, is universal. It's the same experience. Maybe there's more at stake for the elite athlete, you know, who, who needs to, to run well in order to feed him or herself. But the feeling, the sense of accomplishment, all the work that it takes to get there, they're so close. There are so many parallels. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I feel the same way now. You know, I'm in my mid to late 30s. I'm not training as much as I once was, but I get just as excited over some of my clients, their performances, their personal bests than I did over my own personal bests because I understand, you know, the hard work that they're putting through. I understand the sacrifices that they're going through. And, you know, the the coaching aspect of things is is so rewarding. And I think it's just as rewarding as um, being an athlete yourself and experiencing that progress on a more personal level. Uh, now, David, I did want to talk a little bit more about the professionalization of the sport that that you mentioned earlier. And, and it does seem like uh, so many aspects of the sport have now been monetized. Is that, it seems like you're saying this is a good thing. You know, the base of amateur runners really allows for a healthy uh, kind of top of the sport. And, and there's this great, you know, what I might say is trickle up through our shoe purchases and race entry fees and all that. Is, is this a good thing? Is there is there any negative side effects of this or drawbacks to this model that we've kind of found ourselves in? It is a good thing because when a person shows up to a running event, they have and they paid an entry fee, they have every right to expect that that event is going to be held at a proper technical level for them. So what do I mean by that? Will they receive a proper race time? They, they, they must. And in order to do that, you need a person who's professional at doing that. Will they be covered by medical professionals who will be there on the ground? Is there an ambulance service? Does the race have proper insurance? Um, you know, unless you have a professional setting, you're not going to tick all those boxes and have all of those things. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that races that are organized by mostly volunteer groups uh, aren't high quality. And I work with one such race, the Manchester Road Race, which is a big, I'm sure you're familiar with it because you're from New England. It's the second largest race in New England after the Boston Marathon. It's held every Thanksgiving in Manchester, Connecticut, which is outside of Hartford. And that race uses professional vendors you know, like a timing company and broadcasters and that sort of thing. But the race committee is all staffed by volunteers. And it's a very prestigious thing in that city to be on the race committee. And those people are completely uh, committed to delivering the best possible event. And they manage a race with, you know, twelve to 15,000 people every year, and they do it uh, superbly. So there is a broad range of offering, you know, in terms of 
races and how professionalized the services are. But overall, I do think it is a good thing that we have more professionalized services available for athletes. Yeah, with you mentioning, you know, the medical uh, support that is there for you if you need it and the insurance and all that, you know, those are things that I don't think most runners think about. I certainly didn't think about that, uh, you know, when I was thinking of that question to ask you. Uh, and, and, and I think, you know, maybe we shouldn't complain about the high race fees so much because it does seem like we're getting a lot out of it compared with, you know, the $10 fee we might have paid back in 2000 to run a race. Well, I will say, and uh, you might find this interesting, pricing for road races around the world is dramatically different. So in Europe, it's way cheaper to run in road races than it is in the United States. And you might ask, well, why is that? And the main answer is that in the United States, races are expected to pay for the services that the city or local government provides to the race. Will there be police officers out there? You have to pay for them. Will there be EMTs out there? You have to pay for them. You know, do you have to close the streets and use sanitation services? You have to pay for that. New York Roadrunners pays millions of dollars a year to the city of New York for the privilege of using the city streets. They call them the street fees <laughs> there. Now in Europe, the cities provide all that stuff gratis. Nobody, nobody charges the races. And that is a huge cost savings uh, for events. So there might be some places in the United States where races have good enough relationship with local governments that they don't charge them. Uh, but that is really rare. And that drives up the cost uh, of entry fees in the U.S. Yeah, well, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here. I would love to talk more about some of the rationale behind cities charging races for the privilege, as you said, of using their streets. Because I've also read so much about how these races bring in people from all over the country, indeed all over the world, and the economic impact of, say, the Boston Marathon, for example, is just absolutely enormous for the city of Boston. Is there an argument to be made that the cities should comp all those services for the privilege of the race bringing in all this economic activity to the city? You know, you're right. And like the New York City Marathon brings in $400 million in economic activity for the city in a normal year. Uh, but the city still thinks that it is fair to charge uh, the organizer for some of those services. Uh, and I guess there has to be a balance, you know, somewhere along the line. Uh, but as uh, security costs have gone up for races, that's really driven a lot of the, uh, the cost, like the amount of uh, anti-terrorism uh, steps that races have to take to make people safe, especially after the Boston Marathon bombing, uh, you know, really are expensive. Uh, but when I go to races overseas, I don't see that level of, of security. You know, people just don't think uh, that, it's, that it's warranted. But you're right. You want to bring in money to a town, hold a big road race. Yeah. And as someone who's at the 2013 Boston Marathon, when the bombing happened, I can certainly see how a lot of runners would come to expect some safety precautions in place. Uh, for sure, that is uh, a smart thing to do in our current age. But um, I want to kind of step back a little bit. And, you know, I asked you what has changed over the years. 
uh, w- within the sport of road racing and running more generally, what do you think is going to stay the same over the next, you know, five to 10 years or even 20 years? In other words, you know, what aspects to the sport will remain unchanged over the coming decades that you think are just so fundamental? I think the universality of it, the fact that running is the same, whether you're doing it in China or in Singapore or in Houston or in Toronto, you know, it's the same thing. And the fact that you can measure what people are doing uh, in equal ways between those locations. So a marathon is a marathon is a marathon. A 10K is a 10K uh, is a 10K. And the excitement of just seeing athletes competing against each other, you know, really drives the sport forward. And I also think that running and track and field has one huge thing going for it that other sports do not, or most other sports do not. It's one of the few sports that has both men and women competing at a high level on the field of play at the same time. You just don't have that in the NBA. You don't have that in the NFL or MLB or even in tennis, you know, where people are competing, you know, separately. So if you go to a high level track meet and you're a fan, you're going to get to see both top men and women on the same uh, field of play in the same time that you're there. Uh, I think that will all stay the same. And I think that that's a great thing. I also think that school sports which drives everything above it, I hope, I hope after the pandemic will stay the same. The fact that we have this wonderful development system in the United States with high school sports and college sports that brings us our uh, top stars. I hope that stays the same. And I hope that, you know, most of the organizers globally are able to hold it together through this down period and come back next year. And I worry that some of them won't. And that's the one thing that I worry the most that won't stay the same. When you say that, do you mean individual races won't come back after the pandemic? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So let's take a, a typical you know, race that had to cancel. Um, they may or may not have incurred most of the costs of this year's race. Uh, if they offered a refund, that would mean they'd have to pay that money back out of reserves because they've already spent most of those entry fees. Or if they said, you know what, we'll roll forward your entry fee to next year, that means they're not going to collect that money again next year. And you need some reserves to pull that off. And, you know, I know some events that just go on a shoestring. You know, they practically are financing next year's race from this year's entry fees. it's it's tough. Um, I know a guy who's been a longtime race organizer, and he just told me he's going to have to close his, his shop and look for a job, that he doesn't have, uh, you know, the reserves uh, to keep it all going until this thing comes back, especially when nobody knows when it's going to come back, at least at least robustly. Yeah. Now, do you see this uh, as a time of innovation? Is there opportunity for race organizers to create new types of events that might, um, you know, increase the excitement about the sport or draw more people into the sport? Are you seeing some of those things happening in this time? Yes. And uh, for instance, uh, you might have seen uh, this event called the Brooklyn Mile, which was held uh, in June, that's typically a regular, you know, in-person road race, traditional kind of thing, a couple thousand people. 
And when the organizer knew that they weren't going to be able to hold their race because of the pandemic, instead of completely folding up shop, he changed his pricing completely to a flat fee of $15 and turned the event into a virtual race that was going to be scored using this V.02 system. So each athlete would get a uh, age-graded VDOT score depending on the mile that they ran, wherever it was they did it. And they had three days when the window opened, you know, to run the race and then the window closed. Now, they took 80% of the entry fees and donated it to COVID relief in New York City. And they took 20% of the entry fees and they made that into a crowdsourced prize money pool that would be paid out to the people that ran the best based on their VDOT scores, regardless of their age, because the scores were all age graded. And the organizer donated his time to use the platform to pull the thing together. And they got seven or 800 people to do this. And they got some world-class athletes to do it. And the best performance came from a 61-year-old man in Colorado. He had the best, he was the only person to get a VDOT score of 10. 10 is the highest. Um, and he won prize money. And that was really innovative um, to do that um, instead of just folding up shop. Yeah, that's such a great example of, you know, looking at your limitations and doing what you can do with what you have. And, oh, that's such a great story. Um, do you think there's going to be more innovations like this in the future? I mean, what do you anticipate will continue evolving, not just because of coronavirus and the limitations that we're experiencing now, but, you know, just in the next 10, 20 years of distance running, how will the sport evolve and change? Well, a big, big, big paradigm shift over the last 12 to 18 months has been the introduction of the super shoes. And there's no question that these shoes that use uh, carbon plates and have special uh, high rebound foams uh, make it possible to run faster. There's there's just no doubt about it. The New York Times did a study of hundreds of thousands of performances uh, across using, I think, uh, oh God, one of the big uh, websites that has you know millions of performances to look at. Uh, and there's no question that these shoes allow you to run faster. So everything has to be readjusted now. Uh, like for instance, for a man to run a two weight marathon. Uh, was a big deal and now is a whole lot less of a big deal, you know, because of the super shoes. Uh, and that I think is the biggest innovation in running in a long time. And world athletics, the world governing body has decided that the super shoes are legal as long as the midsole is no thicker than 40 millimeters. And the one that is most famous, the Nike Vaporfly or the Alpha Fly, it's exactly 40 millimeters. <laughs> so uh, now the other shoe companies are catching up. Uh, they're making similar kinds of shoes and they're flying off the shelves at $275 a pair uh, for regular runners who want to run faster. And I think that that is a big innovation. Do you think that's an exciting innovation or do you think one that, that <laughs> do you think this is an innovation that has a lot of, uh, causes a lot of runners to have reservations about the, re- the innovation itself? You're absolutely right. Like if you talk to someone who's really competitive, right, they'll tell you that, look, if I don't buy these shoes or wear these shoes, 
I'm putting myself at a disadvantage over my competition. So you might know there's an Irish marathoner named Stephen Scullion, uh, who's an Under Armour athlete, and he spray painted uh, a pair of vapor flies with black spray paint before running the Houston Marathon so he could have the benefit of those shoes, ran 211 and ran Olympic qualifying time. Now, he would probably tell you that he wouldn't have qualified unless he had worn the shoes because he would have been at a disadvantage. Uh, and as long as they're legal, everyone is going to be using, you know, a similar product. They could have made the decision not to make them legal, uh, but they didn't. And that's where we are. So maybe you remember um, swimming went through the same thing where they had these super suits that gave extra buoyancy and the water somehow, you know, uh, went off it so that there was less friction going through the water and all these world records were broken and uh, the governing body for swimming fina decided that the suits were out and they got rid of them so who knows maybe we'll see a change where we'll go back for but the time being uh the shoes are here to stay but let me add that that's what makes my absolute favorite running of all is cross country and the shoes in cross country are meaningless (laughs) <laughs> right. I have a, a certain affinity for cross country. It was the first running sport that I got involved with. And I don't know if it's maybe because it was a little bit more team oriented than track and field, uh, or I just liked running a lot in the woods, but it, it just has a special place in my heart. And yeah, I don't think people are going to be running around on uh, grass with those kinds of thick shoes. Uh, they, they really won't do very much. Um, but David, what are you really excited about in the coming years in the sport of running? Is it maybe a certain athlete that's getting you excited? Is it uh, a, a group or a team that's getting together? Is it an idea or a product? You know, uh, every sport, uh, every sports fan, I should say, likes to look back uh, at a sport and say, you know what? You know, these years were the golden era of, you know, of baseball or of football or of hockey, whatever it was, right? Well, we are living right now, this very moment in the golden period of middle distance running for American women. American women in the middle distances, the mile, the 1500 are just off the charts good, better than anyone who ever came before them. Uh, and they're just mind blowing. So one of my my gigs, my last gigs before I stopped doing the professional athlete recruiting is that I recruited the athletes for the Wanamaker Mile uh, in the New York Roadrunners Milrose Games. And, you know, Eleanor Purrier uh, ran 416 in that mile uh, this year, which is a time that you just never would have seen uh, years ago, maybe for, uh, from only Mary Slaney. And now you have a dozen American women who can run in the 420s uh, for the mile and can run, you know, under 405, 404 for 1500. Uh, In the last time I looked at this, 1997, there were three American women under 410. So this is a complete paradigm shift. And the fact that women's running has developed so much is one of the things that I'm most excited about uh, in the sport. It's just incredible. Yeah. And we were talking earlier about that mile that was held in Indiana just this past weekend. You mentioned there was a state record. Uh, I know Emma Coburn was there. I think it was the team boss that she's a part of uh, that pulled together a bunch of athletes for this race. But you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, I, I don't know if 
Uh, I'm sure you are, but the 3000 meter race at the world championships that Emma Coburn won, it was just an electrifying race. And, uh, I remember, I think it was in sports illustrated, uh, but they were talking about how this was, you know, arguably one of the most exciting races that have ever, that's ever been run. And I just, I just think you're absolutely right. We are witnessing such a resurgence of middle distance running on the women's side. Um, and you know, I spoke to Courtney Freericks after her, um, second place finish there at the world championships. And, you know, I just, everyone is just so excited. They have this team mentality. Uh, they are supporting one another and pushing each other forward. And I just can't wait to see, you know, what the next couple of years looks like. Well, at the same time, you know, I'm almost grieving for the fact that during this golden era, we are being deprived of the opportunity to watch these women completely dominate because of COVID and coronavirus. So it is a little sad. And I would like to add that, you know, this is because of Title IX. Um, you know, Title IX was, you know, uh, a law that was passed uh, to ensure that funding in education uh, was equal for men and women. But nobody, nobody was thinking about sports at the time. But because of the way, because of the importance of educational institutions like universities and high schools are in athlete development, it did have an impact on sports. And, you know, young girls today have these fabulous stars to look up to. They can look up to Colleen Quigley and to Courtney Frerichs and Emma Coburn and Jenny Simpson and say, wow, I really want to be like them. And, you know, there's so much talent in our population of 330 million people. Uh, I just expect uh, this trend to continue and to become even more exciting. Right. And when we think back to, I think it was the the sixties when, you know, women weren't even allowed to run marathons. People thought their uteruses would fall out if they were to run that far. I mean, just crazy stuff. It, we have come such a long way and, you know, I'm just really excited for my own two daughters to see, you know, the role models that they'll have in sport and where they take things. Cause it's just such an exciting time. You're right. I mean, my absolute favorite race to recruit athletes for was the uh, the Mini 10K, which was the very first road race for women, founded in 1972 by New York Roadrunners. And that was the first race I ever worked on for New York Roadrunners in 2001. And Paula Radcliffe, I recruited Paula Radcliffe, and she won the race and ran the number two time in history for 10K. And I was like, wow, this is really an easy job. Uh, but, you know, that race... Uh, is what opened the door for all of these uh, other events and, you know, really uh, uh, is a wonderful tradition and keeps helps keeps that playing field level uh, for women uh, going forward. There's just very few sports where women enjoy uh, the same kind of attention and profile as men and running is one of those sports. And it's also very interesting because it's one of the few sports where in some circumstances, women will outrun men. That almost doesn't happen. You won't find women baseball players, football players, soccer players who can compete one-to-one -one against a man. But in a 100-mile trail ultramarathon that might take 25 hours or, or even uh, longer races like the um, you know, the, the run across death Valley that I think is 138 miles if my memory is serving me correctly. Um, and even I'm thinking about, you know, the world's 
toughest mudder competition. That's a 24 hour, you know, survivor oriented kind of a race. You often have women beating all of the men. And that is, uh, I, I think such a fascinating component to the sport. Um, you know, us men, we can't rest too easy on our laurels because depending on the event, we might have women catching up to us. Yes, I'm always quick to point out those incidences in Race Results Weekly. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, uh, this was fascinating. I love learning more about the sport from this perspective. And uh, I saved my my biggest, most difficult question to answer for last. You know, in talking with you and, and thinking more about the sport in this way, you know, I can't help but think of the huge question of how we can make track and road racing a more fan oriented sport. How do we grow that fan base? And with your experience in covering pro events and, you know, really looking, uh, across the entire world at all the results of these races every week, I'd love to ask you as well in your mind, how can we get more fans into the sport of running? It's, it's, it's as simple as it is, as it is difficult. Uh, unless, a sport is routinely on broadcast, you'll never have a big fan base. Uh, that's just the way it is. Like it's incredible the amount of time that baseball fans spend watching baseball, right? It's typical for a team to play what four or five games a week. Each game is pushing three hours. They have fans that sit down and watch all of those games because they're on broadcast and because they are easy to get on broadcast, not some sketchy stream on some website that you have to find somewhere, but you know, they're on their favorite channels and sports channels and even over the air channels. And that's the biggest barrier for popularizing uh, track and field and road running is getting more time on broadcast. Now in the last 10 years, the amount of time on broadcast has increased, has increased a lot because of services like FlowTrack or USATF.TV or Runner Space or even um, NBC Sports Gold, which brings, you know, the Diamond League. But those are pay services and not everyone uh, can pay for those services. And a casual sports fan isn't going to find uh, those kinds of broadcasts uh, you know, accidentally, you're not going to stumble over that. In Europe, where track is more popular, uh, all the big meets and the road races, they're all on over the air television on national broadcasters. And it's a lot easier to build a fan base uh, when you do that. The other thing, uh, Jason, that's very important in the world globally, in the hierarchy of sports, you know, soccer is just this gigantic number one that sits on top of everything, right? But in Europe, there's a whole bunch of number twos underneath the giant number one. In the United States, that's not true. In the United States, we have football and hockey and baseball and basketball and the entire tier of NCAA sports, you know, basketball and football in particular. Those take up so much space, you know, on broadcast and in people's minds. That's very, very hard for other sports that are below that to get any attention. Uh, and I think in the United States, it'll always be challenging uh, to bring in more fans. Right. And and maybe maybe we need to have more services like yours that help people tell the stories of running, because I think that is what folks really uh you know, they identify with that, those stories and narratives, uh, resonate with them. 
And uh, I think if we can do more of that, we'll make running certainly a more interesting sport to follow because at least among my friends who aren't into the sport, you know, they look at it as a somewhat boring sport. You know, why would I watch someone run around for two hours to win a marathon? And at the same time, I'm thinking, well, you'll spend more than that watching a bunch of guys sit around for most of the time out on a baseball diamond. And in my mind, that is much more boring because most of the time, they're not even doing anything. They're not even exercising. They're standing there. They're waiting. And yeah, maybe we need more of that. We need more stories. We need more rivalries. And I'm thinking back to David, to something we were talking earlier about some of those big races that you've remembered over the years. Uh, and they weren't those tactical races. They were the races that in an Olympic final were really fast. You know, it was the 800 or it was that 2002 marathon where there was a world record among three giants in the, in the distance running community. And, and maybe we need more of that, just all out brawls for speed in the sport to get more folks into it. I'm all for the all-out brawls. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, David, thank you so much. This was fascinating for me as a self-described running nerd. I just love learning more about the sport, especially this kind of a perspective on the sport, almost this kind of behind the scenes, how, you know, results are tabulated and sent out and, you know, how you're giving announcers the data that they need to tell these stories. You've certainly been a big part of um, those announcers being more informed so that they can tell better stories. So thank you so much, David. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Jason. And there we have it, ladies and gentlemen. David was a true pleasure to hang out with for an hour, and I'm just so appreciative of all the stories he was able to tell on this episode. Now, if you haven't yet watched David Rudisha break the 800-meter world record at the 2012 Olympics, Go to YouTube right now and find that video. It's just a stunning demonstration of speed, racing skill, and guts, and I'm so glad David mentioned it. It's one of my favorite races to watch. I'd also like to thank our newest sponsor, Elemental Labs, for their support of this episode. They make electrolyte drinks for athletes and low-carb folks with no sugar, no artificial ingredients, and no artificial colors. Their citrus flavor has quickly become my favorite, and I'm drinking one a day now to help me drink enough fluids in our dry Colorado air here. There's also now mounting evidence that higher sodium levels are not actually harmful, but necessary, especially for athletes who exercise a lot. Of course, ask your doctor if you're worried, but for those athletes running outside in the heat, an electrolyte replacement makes a lot of sense, and I'm encouraged by the fact that Navy SEAL teams, Olympic teams and pro athletes have all started using elemental electrolyte supplements to improve their performance. Learn more about what they do at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. Thank you for listening to the show. And I also want to thank those of you who have left a review of the podcast in Apple Music. You guys are so nice and I appreciate you all giving back. Until next time. 